support for Why Is That Important is 100% provided by you. We are blown away by the hundreds of downloads we've gathered over our first season, and we are super grateful to have the opportunity to host a second season. And even though submitting a podcast is free, there's a lot of other little expenses here and there, and that's where you come in. Even just a dollar a month goes a long way in making this podcast better. So, if you love this podcast and want to put some money behind it, go to patreon.com slash W-I-T-I, or you can click in the show notes. Uh, once again, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash W-I-T-I. We really appreciate it. And thanks for being a great listener. Why that the party? Why is that important? The podcast is called Why Is That Important? Hey there, and welcome to Why Is That Important, where regular people come for interesting ideas and perhaps a little debate. I'm your host, Joe Wanger, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Martin. Hola, amigos. And each week we have the privilege of interviewing someone who has something they feel is important enough to talk about, and we take the time to discuss it and perhaps even disagree on it. And today's topic is personal growth, and uh, as you know, Andrew, I'm personally, I'm against personal growth. Well, yeah, why is that, Joe? Because I'm only 5'7". Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's even worse the second time around. <laughs> All right, well, yeah, so today our conversation is with Amy Simon. Um, I'll intro her in just a little bit, but uh, the conversation for me was not only just about the content of what what was going on, but like there was like the story behind it, and I think that really shows um, shows through in in what was being said. I mean, what did you think, Andrew? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the great thing about the way Amy communicates is that she's very mindful of the listener, and sometimes a little bit too much. It seems like, but <laughs> yeah. I'll leave that up for you guys to judge. Um, and so it was really interesting to hear the way she she describes her experience and what she's learned through it and how she is still continuing to grow and you know how that how that growth has impacted the way she treats people and the way she sees other people in their growth so i think it's a really it's it is really eye opening for me and i really enjoy hearing what she has to say yeah and i think it's even neater because you are related you know brother and sister um that you're able to hear kind of a story through a fresh lens, fresh perspective, and and then like bring it home with the, the personal growth aspect um, throughout. So, uh, yeah. So today, uh, like we said, Amy Simon, uh, she also happens to be Andrew's sister. Um, in her description, she says that she is on her day job, uh, management consultant for government, which that could probably be a podcast in in of itself managing <laughs> government <laughs> um, she does she, managing for the government she doesn't actually manage the government sorry that's true she's a management consultant um clearly they're not listening to her <laughs> she's assistant to the regional manager oh okay yeah, exactly <laughs> um you know she didn't say uh what her what her night job was so i'm going to go with superhero um, she has uh, degrees in history and public policy, has a lot of uh, nonprofit management and loves goat memes. Uh, we talk about that a little bit. Specialty cheeses, asking people about their hearts, being surprised by Jesus, reading books about personal growth and her husband. Um, and she one day dreams of writing books in the South of France. Does, did, so she said she dreamed, how about reading books about her husband or something like that? Well, it said about personal growth, things that she loves and her husband. She finished off with that. Oh, see, I thought she said she loves reading books about her husband. And I was really interesting to, <laughs> interested to hear books about her husband. But Yeah, we should, we should get her to write one so we can read it. <laughs> yeah, the definitive anthology. Yes, Anywho, exactly. moving right along. <laughs> All right. Well, and so, you know what, with, uh, without further ado, here is our conversation with Amy Simon. All right, Amy. Uh, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Before we get like into the conversation, I need to know in your description. You said that you like a good goat meme, and yes. I just need to know like what. First off, like, can you give me an example of a goat meme, and what's your favorite one? Sure. Um, so first of all, I think goats are pretty magical animals, and most of the internet seems to agree, which I appreciate. Um, but I think that my favorite one would have to be. 
uh, splicing in the screaming goat clips on top of Taylor Swift songs. So um, <laughs> if you just Google, I knew you were trouble goats, uh, you're just going to experience one of the great moments of your life. So um, <laughs> that would be one that I love. But I mean, really, any ridiculous goat gif, you know, Oh, always happy. Really, really don't have a high standard for hilarious goats. But yeah, I don't even know how it started, but I've sort of gotten to be known for my extensive use of goat related humor. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've that's been fantastic. forewarned is really what I'm saying. So, okay. Yeah. That's, that's a new thing. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, can real quick, can we take a, like another yes. slight tangential? Yeah. Uh, is it, is it GIF or is it GIF? I, that's a great question. And I've had this conversation. May I butt in here for a moment? The guy that originally wrote the software that created that file type claims it's GIF. But basically, yeah, everybody else is like, that's peanut butter, and we know it. It's a GIF. So that's. Uh, I call it GIF. I've always called it a GIF. It is totally a GIF to me. I mean, if it was a GIF, it should have a freaking J. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard both ways, and um, I always have this little mini panic attack when I say it out loud. Like, am I talking to someone who has strong <laughs> feelings about how to pronounce <laughs> this word? So thanks for... Thanks for pointing that out. But no, I really, we just want to set you at ease. You know? <laughs> really have no clear answers to that question either. So, <laughs> all right. So, uh, personal growth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. This blends seamlessly. I love it. Yes, totally. It's a great segue. So, <sighs> you know, so we're talking about personal growth here. And um, maybe to start out, give us a little bit of background as you've kind of explored this in your life and um the importance that it maybe it's played just maybe just like a ten thousand foot view of of all that yeah sure um so i guess i would say that i've always been someone who's very interested in sort of how humans tick how we observe our world and also always interested in productivity books and planners and to-do lists, um, perhaps to a fault, let's be honest. So I, I sort of had this, you know, love of sort of productivity literature in some sense, where I always like read articles about, um, ways that people manage their time or their health or whatever, uh, to achieve goals. And so I was sort of always on this bandwagon, this underlying belief that, you know, I just need the right management skills to sort of get the circus that is my life, you know, headed in the right direction. And then, um, kind of tromping along that path through, through college. And, um, afterwards I sort of realized, you know, the rest of life is not like school at all. Um, and this should not have been surprising, but school was sort of my template <laughs> in some sense for viewing the world. And so, then it sort of started broadening and there were several kind of personal crises in my mid twenties that forced me to kind of come to terms with the fact that my approach to life wasn't exactly working on a number of fronts. And so I sort of opened up a whole new field for me in terms of, you know, actually what, what do I believe the point of life is and what do I actually want out of life? And, you know, there are some things that I know that I want, but I can't ever quite, you know, get get all the ducks in a row. Like, what's that about? Um, and so that sort of led me into, you know, first of all, personal counseling for my own things, kind of for the first time in my mid to late 20s. And then through that, I sort of stumbled into um, a program for people at my church to become volunteer lay counselors. So, just regular congregants who have a gift or are interested in kind of the world of counseling. And so we got some training, several series of classes and, you know, kind of very close mentorship. And then sort of, you know, I started in some sense seeing volunteer clients, people from church. Um, and obviously all of it just as confidential, but uh, not as professional <laughs> as I would like to say. Um and so that also sort of gave me a window into other people's stories and realizing like, oh, these questions that I have aren't just my questions. And 
Um, so yeah, that has sort of been, you know, the reading and the experience and the conversations around both my own story and the people whose stories I was interacting with in lay counseling and just, you know, friends and family, uh, sort of propelled me into this place of being interested in how do we think about personal change? How do we think about growth? Um, how do people really look at the world and it's, you know, everyone has really different perspective, but I think we all think about what we want to be or do and how do we get there um, is a fascinating question. So if I may ask a quick question, um, I don't want to pry too much, but like what what was the flavor of the crises that pushed you towards um, investigating you know, the aspects of personal change, because I think there's a certain, everybody has something that they're like, you know what, I really ought to, I should do this, or I should stop doing this, or it'd be great if I could. You know, we all have that list. Um, but some people are like, proactive and do something about it. And some people are like, frankly, it's not that big of a deal. And I'm okay living the life I, you know, the hand I've been dealt in some ways. So I'm just, I, and I'm, like I said, I, I really don't want to pry too much, but just give us a, a sense of like, what kind of, existential angst led you to the point where you wanted to make, you know, a serious move in that direction. Right. He's like, Oh, my brother is Andrew. What do yeah. I do with that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Full disclosure. Right. Um, I would say, first of all, I specialize in existential angst. So this is not, this is totally, <laughs> totally in my wheelhouse, not concerned at all. Um, I think that for me, it was relational. Um, so, you know, some people have a health crisis and you're suddenly like, oh my goodness, I need to change my diet and my exercise. Or you have, um, you know, a financial crisis and it's like, okay, this is not working. For me, it was relational. Um, I would say relational and vocational, to be fair. So on the relational front, I would say, you know, I at that point wanted to be married and I wasn't, but I was sort of confused about you know, if really, was I really upset at being single or was it something else? And I would say vocationally, you know, I had a job at a small nonprofit with a great team of coworkers, but I certainly didn't feel like this was what I wanted to do and trying to figure out, you know, how do I make these big life decisions? Um, and sort of the path that I had had, which was, you know, school sort of lays out the framework um, for each successive year. Um, those frameworks that I had in some sense gave me no answers to the questions I was facing. Um, and so I think that's what sort of spurred it on. So as you approached this, this subject with, with the knowledge that, you know, the things that you, the, the resources that you had available to you, um, weren't fixing or weren't helping, like mm -hmm. where, where did you, like, where did you go from there? Like, how does, yeah. um, like, what was your, like, maybe even give us a little bit of your mindset as you're like, okay, these aren't right. working. <laughs> I, what do you even, where do I even start uh, to make, to move forward from these things? Yeah, sure. And I certainly, I did feel very stuck. Um, and I felt, you know, I was still going through the motions in the rest of my life, but I was sort of like, I feel really stuck in these areas that I don't know how to change and sort of in terms of singleness and I'm not sure what to change to in terms of my vocation. And so, yeah, I definitely felt stuck. Um, and I felt, I would say angry on some level because I mean, I'm a human being and I have entitlement issues. So, <laughs> um, I think, or is that cause you're a millennial? Yeah, I mean, maybe that, either okay. both. <laughs> okay. One might exacerbate the other yeah, too. Right. <laughs> So, um, uh, so I think both of those, you know, yes, they both left me feeling a little bit stuck and I think anger is, is a natural response to helplessness. Um, and I think the next solution <laughs> hilariously was, um, something that I've unfortunately relied on too much in my life, which is I should do some research on this topic. So <laughs> I literally, uh, started reading books um, about relationships. I started, you know, there's a lot of very interesting writing, quite frankly, um, about sort of the progression of not just romantic, but all like 
the way society and relationships function together, there's a lot of really interesting writing about how those models were changing, how, um, you know, evangelical church community that I'd grown up in the late, you know, 80s, early 90s, like that had created all of these sort of strange um, cultural remnants in some sense that were affecting the dating scene. So there were all these things, there's lots to read. So some of it was academic, some of it was very not academic. Um, And then I started, this is embarrassing to admit, but I uh, pulled the Bureau of Labor Statistics on uh, marriage rates and I like calculated like what the chances were of me getting married. So (laughs) you didn't read the XKCD cartoon where he says that actually as you age, the pool of dateable singles grows. (laughs) No, it's actually, it's fascinating because you can't just take, sorry, this is a really weird tangent, but um, you can't just take, it's like a snapshot in time. So number of people ever married at a certain age counts people who were married and are now divorced or whose partner has passed away. So it's sort of like you can't, marriage statistics are like a lagging indicator in some sense. So um, you can't see ahead, like how the demographics are going to change. Anyway, spent way too much time in actual statistics because I wanted to, I was like at my wits end of how do I understand where I am? And so I went, my first, what I'm saying is my first response was, I will learn about this and I will conquer it with my brain. Well, as anyone who's been alive for more than five minutes knows, that doesn't really work that well um, with matters of the heart and of, you know, calling. And so I think my next thing was... I think you just offended everybody out there with Asperger's, but we'll move on. Okay. I was just thinking, you know, if you're just emotionally detached. Right. (laughs) That's kind of... Asperger's, one of the symptoms of Asperger's is severe emotional detachment. I heard a great podcast of this lady who had Asperger's and only discovered when she was listening to somebody who had Asperger's describe their experience. And she's like, oh, that's why all these situations in my life are weird. I probably have Asperger's too. But she was really brilliant. She became a medical doctor, but she could not keep a medical assistant. She went through like eight in just like a matter of a few years. And she's like, why do these people, they, they just up and leave. I can't figure out what's wrong with them. But then she realized she's just like blurting out her opinion all the time. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Um. Yeah, emotional detachment didn't work very well for me. I feel like I'm I'm too much of a feeler to trick myself into being detached for too long. So, um, as Amy's sibling, I can hereby confirm that she was very much <laughs> a feeler. There was a time in my life where I felt maybe the best solution was to give her a specific number of hugs per year. So don't waste. This is it. true. This is true. Andrew and I once had a hug quota. Fortunately, we've gotten into unlimited hug territory, so that's good. Yeah, it came with unlimited texting. That's because Andrew, <laughs> Andrew has had personal growth. That's right? There we go. Um, yeah, so after, go, go after I tackled it with my brain, then I sort of was like, okay, I don't know what to do next. And that's how I sort of ended up in counseling. Um, oh, I, I would say there's actually a middle part in there, which is I read all these strategies about dating um, and – all these like joined online dating, got headshots. And not all of this was like a straight line. It's not like all of this happened in six months. It was sort of over several years. Um, And that season of dating, honestly, like it had some good things for me. I learned a lot. Um, Some things, you know, some people I wish (laughs) I hadn't dated or hadn't, you know, um, but in the big scheme of things, I, I believe nothing's wasted. So anyway, at the end of that process, we're sort of burnt out from online dating um, had done all my research and still felt, you know, sort of stuck in some level, I decided, huh, maybe I should go talk to someone about this. Um, actually at the recommendation of a friend originally. Um, but it was, it was providential and it was great. So, so counseling was actually kind of your last resort. Yeah, definitely. Um, why is why do you think that? Why I'm just curious. Maybe you don't want to talk about it, but uh, no, I'm sure. curious why that was like the end, the right. end result for you <laughs> instead of like the. the yeah, well, this the is one of uh, one of the things I think is really interesting is that you know we carry around voices, stories, experiences that influence our behavior all the time, and I carried around a belief that counseling was for people with you know, clinically diagnosable um, 
psych disorders and real I, problems. Right. And I was pretty <laughs> sure I wasn't in that category. So why would I go to counseling? Um, and that's definitely not what counseling is about, but I, you know, my false perception of what counseling was and my false perception of my own issues, um, kind of made me think that wasn't something I needed to, to do or look at or not even an option. Um, and I think that was the most surprising thing about counseling, honestly, is that it wasn't really that dramatic. It was another person asking questions and patiently listening, which is often um, very therapeutic all by itself, even if the person does absolutely nothing else. Um, so... Almost like a paid friend at that point. <laughs> well, yeah. And actually, there are studies showing that... Um, I don't have to like actually look this up so I can cite this. But I'm, uh, I think there are studies showing that counselors who just actively listen and give nonverbal feedback, um, maintain eye contact and give body language that denotes engagement, sometimes had success rates as high as people that were using some sort of particular method or angle. So <laughs> I think there's something about human beings that um, resonates with being, we need to be heard. And sometimes that needs to be in a counseling setting and there's nothing completely fine. But I didn't know that at the beginning. So it was actually a really big step for me to fill out the form and go meet with someone. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Similar. Yeah. Yeah, same here. <laughs> there's there's certainly a moment where I think if you're going along, so uh, as a form of disclosure, I haven't been in that kind of counseling, but I did recently, um, I guess, ask, request that I be evaluated for uh, a certain mental health disorder. But anyway, there is a certain sense of like when you're when you're filling that that form out, whatever it looks like, you're just kind of like. Well, I guess I'm admitting this is real now, aren't I? Or <laughs> before I could say, ah, I'll grow out of it. It's a phase or I'll figure it out. But now I'm like at the point where I'm like, nope, <laughs> I need help. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that moment of humility and willingness to accept, okay, I'll find out what this person says or I'll see what's on the other side of this um, is one of the places where we're most able at that point, you're willing to change. You're you're saying the status quo is not sustainable. So, I think those moments, however they happen, tend to be doorways. Even though they're terrifying, they're doorways to really good things most of the time. It's funny. I was just listening to a, a podcast, and it was uh, the the they were interviewing the guy who does the bar rescue show. I've never heard of it, but um, he's like, hmm. you know, he's talking about you can't change your actions. People won't change their actions until they've changed, changed their mindset. And yeah. it's kind of, it's, it's interesting. He's talking about it from a standpoint of, you know, your bar sucks and it needs to get back right. to, to doing good business. But, um, I was just thinking in this context, it, it really does fit. You can't, you really can't change what you're doing until you change how you're thinking uh, about what you're doing or what you're going to do. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's, um, I think it's a really big fallacy to look around and say like, oh, people should change their actions. Um, actions are the last thing, you know, on the surface. And things have usually gone haywire a long time before that action <laughs> happened. Um, <laughs> whether it's something as simple as, you know, eating something you don't want to eat or it's something as drastic as, you know, repeating some pattern that's self-destructive. So, uh, but yeah, it it really... We don't see the insides of other people, but that's where sometimes I think the most courageous decisions are actually made in places that no one else sees. And so there's, I think that's one of the things about personal growth or change. Most of the articles we read are about external behaviors or even things that could be internal, like writing a gratitude journal or meditating, but construed as actions you should do to get some certain outcome. And I think for some people that um, probably works, but I think for a lot of people, it just adds to the list of guilt or a weight of things they should be doing. Like, oh, I should be meditating or I should be like 
resting or whatever. Um, and instead of saying, why am I the sort of person who doesn't want to stop? Or why am I the person who feels um, uneasy considering a future in which I'm not married? Like, that, the bigger question is not, am I going to get married? But what sort of person am I going to be, regardless if I get married or not? And that's a much scarier question to ask. And one which I actually have more direct impact on, but I'm not taking responsibility for when I'm putting all the pressure on the external outside thing. So I think that happens in lots of contexts. Um, but I, you're exactly right. It's not, it's not always starting with different actions. So what, what then, since you're not, you don't start with actions, but ultimately that's usually the thing that people want to see change in their own life, right? They're at the point where they're saying, I want to do something different. So where does, where's the bottom of that period since pyramid, since we know where the top is having your actions changed, where, you know, where do you believe that begins? Sure. Um, so I would say for me, you know, obviously being a Christian, my answer to that question is going to be different than someone who doesn't believe in Jesus. But, you know, for me, it's a heart level reality. So um, I was actually just reading a very interesting book about change and truth and kind of how we view spiritual development as Christians. And it was talking about how there has to be an active process of God, you know, gently or, you know, forcibly, and perhaps I, I don't think God is forcible in that sense, but sometimes it's more dramatic than other times in which God's uncovering and replacing lies that are in our heart. And so I think that's where the whole, you know, what voices or experiences or old interpretations of my life am I carrying around that are flawed or distorted, um, that are causing me to keep mangling something in the present. Um, and so not to say that every action is, you know, tied to some past event, but I think we are naive if we tell ourselves that my actions today are somehow independent <laughs> of the past. Um, so I would say that the bottom of the pyramid is probably our internal world. So our, our heart, our mind, our will, um, whatever words you kind of use for that. And I think that is, for me as a Christian, that's the Holy Spirit's main operating room in some sense. So then, so, yeah, go ahead, Joe. No, go ahead. Go ahead Andrew. I was just going to say, okay, so the Holy Spirit's at work in the heart, right? And that changes what? That changes something you believe? That changes a lie into a truth? Sure. Oh, so I would say, you know, often there's sort of this cycle of seeing, having the distorted or false piece revealed and then having God, sub, you know, pull that piece out and we have an opportunity to repent. Um, seek forgiveness for the ways in which, you know, we've believed that lie, agreed with it, acted out of it and hurt other people. Um, and God replaces it with truth. And so truth about who he is, about who we are. Um, and there's forgiveness, you know, kind of right there with it. So we have the freedom to see the implications of that truth kind of spiral out into the rest of our lives and eventually our actions. Um, so I would, you know, this is a really sort of very bizarre example in some sense, but I have a friend who, um, struggled a lot with overeating and realized that one of the first times that, um, she had sort of remembers sort of eating to numb something was like a really traumatic event as a child and recognizing that maybe her struggle with overeating wasn't simply because she really likes the thing that she's eating, but actually a very old pattern established in some childhood trauma that she's 
almost mindlessly repeating as a coping mechanism, that's actually really freeing in and of itself. Like recognizing like, oh, like I'm believing that if I eat enough of this stuff, I'm going to stop feeling this pain that I felt as a kid. And that's not true. It makes sense in kid brain um, because it's like you don't have that many tools to understand your world. But this ice you, cream is good. That experience <laughs> was bad with enough ice cream. <laughs> the bad will go away. Right. But now you're like, oh, I'm an adult. I can see why I would believe that. And I can say, oh, interesting. Like, I don't. And so I think that's like a really sort of non theological, non complex example. But I think it makes sense. And not yeah. that, not that, you know, the struggle with food like evaporated the next day, but it, completely shifted the terrain internally in her world so that it she was you're not fighting the same fight it's like the whole the whole map has been shifted so what if you're aware if i'm like what like let's just keep going with that that example what if you're aware of the coping mechanism that 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 you have and yet it doesn't feel like anything is changing like you can be aware of the problem, aware of the reason, but then nothing seems to there seems right. to be just no traction. Well, I would say this is where um, I think there's some books by this guy Kurt Thompson. Um, the first one was called Anatomy of the Soul, uh, which are really fascinating studies of kind of theology and neuroscience overlapping. So. Um, you're like, okay, I have I have mental awareness of this pattern that I would prefer to not keep doing. Um, but one of the things is that our brain, well, first of all, it's incredibly complex and we really don't understand as much as we <laughs> wish that we did, I think, about the brain. Um, speaking as a very non-expert myself. Uh, but I would say that uh, the one thing that stood out in the book was that, you know, neurons that fire together wire together. So it's kind of that same experience. You had a childhood experience. You're eating ice cream. It, it can get into this path. Um, not not that they all do, but it can get into this path where it's almost mindless um, and it's almost automatic that this um, this reflexive behavior happens in response to stress or whatever. So I think awareness is a huge step because that means that you're not at mindlessness. You actually have a bit of your cognitive you know reasoning looking at the pattern saying huh that's happening again weird <laughs> um mm-hmm. even if you don't feel in control of it so and then i would say is trying to change you know a piece of the pattern so maybe putting more time in forcing yourself to think about what else is going on emotionally relationally um, physically that is sort of causing this to be more difficult. Um, cause sometimes our, our bodies and our environments are just sort of <laughs> waltzing off without our cognitive functions. Let's put it that way. So I think <laughs> just taking time to put a pause in the process and be like, okay, what happened there? And, um, and then I would say it's like, it takes a long time to create new paths in your brain. And it, you know, as a Christian, again, I come back to the verse in Romans that talks about our minds being transformed. And I really think that it takes often supernatural strength and supernatural um, energy <laughs> to, res- to not just to resist, but to choose something different. So it's not just, I don't want to eat ice cream, but it's, I do want to, do this other thing more to, to um, actually be that new creation. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's a, it's a slow unfolding over our entire lives. If you know, as a Christian. Um, and so it always reminds me of, um, I'm trying to remember which C.S. Lewis Narnia book it is, but there's um, a really horrid little character named Eustace and he's greedy and he steals, um, gold coins from a dragon and in response he turns into the dragon which is the part that he didn't know before he stole the coins and um 
he's got all of his terrible dragon skin on him and he can't get it off. And so uh, the Christ figure, Aslan, in the story comes and is tearing the dragon skin off of him and obviously not really a pleasant process. And that mental picture to me is often like, that's what most of life with Christ in some sense is like, there's a real you inside and there's a lot of dragon skin that we've picked up um, both to protect ourselves and that we've, you know, hurt other people with. And the real you is sort of like emerging from the dragon skin the whole time that you're on earth and we're going to meet the finished product in heaven. And so I think patience with the fact that this is a, a long journey. I just realized that the skit guys totally stole their their skit, the chisel from Narnia. Or from, <laughs> from, like, was, You're like, wait, that's where that story's from? I was like, huh, that's <laughs> a lot like the chisel from the skit guys. T.S. <laughs> Lewis has a, a kind of a similar story. I think it's in The Great Divorce where he talks about uh, this person has like a giant tumor and, you know, the the angelic being offers to remove it, but it's going to be incredibly painful. And he's like, yes, no, yes, no. And eventually he, he acquiesces and its removal is incredibly painful. And it's like part of him. Uh, but once it's removed, he's like a new creation. And which I think he's, he's making a slightly different point there, especially because he's talking about, you know, uh, our, our final state less than our transitional state, which is what, what, we're experiencing now, but it did have some similarities. And I've often thought about that. It's like, you know, try and put myself like mentally view myself from a third party standpoint and be like, do I want this thing killed that I feel is so much a part of me? And I feel like, you know, as, as much as it hurts, hurts me, it also like, I don't like, it's scary to imagine letting go. And mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think those things come in big and small um, sizes and intensities in, in all of our lives. So it's, and it's going to keep happening. I think that's the other piece. It's like, we, we have grown a lot since we were kids, but there's a lot more growing to do. And I think sometimes it's easy to believe as an adult, like, oh, this is like mostly who I am. And it's like, no, like there's still a lot of, um, adventure in some sense <laughs> ahead so yeah yeah i feel like i've nailed it i don't know what you're <laughs> talking about <laughs> matt chandler talks about how when he was 24 and got his first preaching gig he was like okay you know i think i have an understanding of what god's trying to do in, in the bible and like where, where he's at in my heart and he's like by the time i was like 34 10 years later i was like they let that fool preach <laughs> <laughs> he's like, and by the time I got to 44, I was like, man, I can't believe that fool was making fun of the 24-year-old idiot. <laughs> he's like, and I don't know where I'll be if I'm here in 10 years, what I'll even think about myself now. But, you know, it's like. Yeah. we And we don't have that perspective when it takes time. So. So let's, can I just shift a little bit sure. here? I was looking looking at your the points you'd put down there. And I was, I want to talk about like the, the importance and the role of, of other people. Yeah. In this process, because we talked a lot about, you know, like the books and the mm-hmm. getting aware and all that stuff. Like, how do you see other people playing a part in, in all of this? Sure. So um, I'll just uh, rewind a little bit to when I was talking about my story um, and I sort of went to counseling. And that was an amazing first step and sort of a, a touch point through the whole process, uh, kind of underlying it. But. I met some wonderful friends through a variety of uh, different circumstances that were asking some of the same questions I was or had asked them and had written about them. And so finding people with whom I had the freedom to really ask all of the questions, um, express some of the grief, uh, and to really think more clearly about, you know, in this particular case, like the theology of singleness, the framework of how we think about that piece. So kind of on the external level, but then also on an internal level, I mean, commit to praying 
together once a week, uh, commit to writing, commit to encouraging other people, praying for other people. I am really unsure that (laughs) I would be here in the shape that I am if it were not for the diligence and sacrifice and love of those friends. And so I think, uh, again, in the neuroscience book, which um, Anatomy of the Soul, it talks a lot about how brains don't really exist in isolation. And when we're around other people, actually our brains are picking up on, you know, does the person want to be with me? Are they, are we connecting on this? Do we see the same thing together? Is that spark of like, oh yeah, me too. Um, And I think that is incredibly powerful for us. So that other people can look, you know, can look very different. It can be um, family, it can be friends, it can be a support group with a sort of specific focus. But I certainly don't think that we are meant to live as individuals in isolation. And so whatever that means, uh, even if we have to be creative about it, I think doing it with other people is exponentially more effective um, for us and opens us up to perspectives on our own growth that we might not ever see either. So I would say there's so many times that I was you know, perhaps discouraged or frustrated about any one of these, you know, different personal growth sort of things I was struggling with, in which, you know, the perspective of a friend who had sort of walked with me on my growth and on where I was, was so much more convincing than my own perspective on my growth. um, Because I was like, yeah, that person's been here and they know, they know what I've been through. They know the ups and the downs. And so their assessment, in some sense, it, it carries more weight because you know that they've seen you kind of along the way. So I would say, you know, there's a reason that substance addiction recovery is rarely done alone. There's a reason that um, family counseling is a thing. So, you know, it's like we don't exist as as isolated individuals. And so we shouldn't attempt growth or tackling something painful in our life by ourselves either. So, yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. Where, where do you go about finding those friends? Like I would, you know, I think there's plenty of people out there that'd be like, I would love to have friends like that, but I just don't know anyone that I feel comfortable around. And right. So I'm just curious what you would tell that person slash me. I mean, that <laughs> arch. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, for me, I, yeah, I met some of the people at church. I met some of the people, one of the people who became a great mentor to me, I actually met because she had written a book about singleness. And of all things, I just sent her an email on her website and figured out that we actually lived 20 minutes apart from each other. <laughs> and so um, that is a very bizarre set of circumstances. But the topic was the thing that propelled us together. So in that case, you know, or in the case of if you're in substance abuse rehab or whatever, you know, unfortunately, the thing that brought you together is the thing that also enables you to be vulnerable. So as much or, you know, later I was actually um, in a nine month program for people struggling with relational brokenness. It was all different sorts of things um, run by a local church. And it was um, incredibly freeing because on some level, you knew that everyone else in the room, something had not gone right in their life that would make them commit to coming to a nine-month program about brokenness in relationships. So there's something very honest that automatically happens that allows friendship to grow um, because you're not starting out as trying to present yourself as someone. You're already, by being there, acknowledging that you're not who you wanted to be. So that's like, I would say more on the, you know, I feel like there's some major things off the rails, (laughs) but here are people who are sort of struggling with similar things. On the other side, I would say um, one of the other great things that helped me on the singleness front was honestly starting to actively befriend um, my married friends and their spouses. um, I thought you were going to say single guys. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I, I do. I do like, there were some great friendships with single guys too. So that 
I'll I'll leave it. Uh, but yeah, like getting to know married friends and starting to be vulnerable with them about the fact that uh, this, you know, about my whole life, including the singleness part, not editing out the fact that I was struggling with singleness um, as I had thought that I needed to do before then. So I think, you know, as you're a little bit vulnerable with people, you can tell like, are they giving you the face of like, oh, I'm getting a little overwhelmed? <laughs> In which case, probably not the friends to share with. But um, there are lots of friends, including both of you at different points, uh, who were able to hear where I was, encourage me, share your own stories. Um, so I think on one hand, if there's some particular topic or subject or you know, theme that drives you towards some people, um, that would be one thing. And on the other hand, the people that are already around you who know you and love you are sometimes um, also very willing to hear it if um, coming from a place of vulnerability. But again, not everyone is safe and not everyone, you know, should get the the unfolding of everyone's inner most inner world, I guess I would say. Yeah, it's true. There's, there's lots of people who I think are willing to speak into people's lives, but, but it's the people who are willing to listen yes. and to be with you in those moments. Those are the ones that really, really make a big difference. Yeah. Lots of people I mean, have I advice. Just, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking about, there's a, there's a point in our, in, in our marriage where it was just, it was a low time for me. Um, I had allowed, you know, some thought patterns to, to take hold and um, just the ability, even just to email um, three friends who weren't anywhere necessarily local to me at the time, mm-hmm. um, it, it had a huge impact. Just being able to put it out there and say, this is a reality for me right now. And all of them were willing to listen and ask questions and, and not, they weren't, they weren't necessarily looking to, to fix everything for me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. No, I think those are exactly the sort of relationships that are really important to our growth and our gems when you find them. And I would say the other thing too, is like knowing how much it meant to you that people were listening makes you also more willing when someone comes to you to not try to fix them either to say, Oh, huh. Tell me more about that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Counselor talk. And how does that make you feel? Right, Open ended exactly. question. <laughs> All right, so let's uh so fast forward to to Amy Simon now. Right. Um so you you did you're no longer single. Correct. Um so the point of time from you know, you talked about getting getting into into those things to now, like how have you seen the stuff that you did do work and shift and like, mm-hmm. like give us a little bit of the rest of the story yeah. up to the present. No, that's a great question. So I would say, um, yeah, it sort of took, you know, several years of lots of different, like I talked about, you know, anger, helplessness, research, excessive dating, all of the above. Um, and I think actually my 30th birthday was a pretty, big turning point for me um, because I realized that very few of my family and friends um, knew what it was to be 30 and single and to most people this is not a big deal at all just for the record I'm not trying to make this sound like excessive suffering (laughs) it's not Um, it was not as much we all have our stuff (laughs) yeah it was just for me it was um, it happened to be the thing but um, in no way am I suggesting that this is the world's hardest life. Um, but I would say that my 30th birthday actually was um, a turning point because I realized, you know, this whole time I've been looking for a map of how I'm supposed to live my life. So what are these events or, you know, life milestones that I can count on happening and will tell me in some sense who I am? Like I'm looking for my identity out of this predefined map of life And realizing, you know, like, oh my goodness, like there aren't that many people that I am really close with who know what this 30 and single thing looks like. Like they don't have maps either. Like, and I was like, well, I don't have a map. Like, where am I supposed to get this map? And (laughs) 
Um, I think that was the moment where I was like, oh, there isn't a map, Amy. Like, it doesn't take most people 30 years to figure that out. <laughs> but um, <laughs> some of us, it takes a little bit longer. Um, and so I think just realizing, like, there's not a map. And I could get married next year or I could get married when I'm 81. And there's still not going to be a map. And so I think it shifted. Again, it's that whole shifting the internal terrain of sort of my thinking and I realized like I don't have time to sit around and be obsessed with data about whether I'm going to get married like I I actually only have one life to live and I have to start living it and I can't say that I had suddenly had some sort of dramatic transformation I was still um, very much muddling through that but in a in a from a different perspective quite frankly um when I was introduced to my husband and uh, ironically he was at a similar point and both of us had very low expectations and somehow ended up married. So go figure. <laughs> well, Andrew, Andrew always says that as long as you have low expectations, anything can be, you can, you can succeed at anything. <laughs> yeah. Right. Can we just, can we just caveat that uh, at the time when you met him, he wasn't your husband? Yes, true. Because <laughs> that would kind of complicate things. My now husband. Yeah, it was not an arranged marriage. It was it was a blind date more than an arranged marriage. <laughs> so, yeah, I would say um, I, I think that my internal perspective on what life um, is supposed to look like had had shifted um and it single again singleness happened to be the context but it can happen through anything and so context had shifted for me and i entered marriage probably less with fewer expectations than i might have 10 years earlier um but i think on the other side of marriage like i still am me and i'm still tackling um all of the things that you know, my single self, all the same patterns, just in a new context. And so I think that's been really interesting to see, um, kind of see that unfold as well. So I've been really enjoying being married, but at the same time, it's like, oh, interesting. Like I still, you know, there's still a part of me that's looking for a map. There's still a part of me that wants to think about it really hard. There's still a part of me that wants to make everything right and that fundamental disposition i think is you know human nature but is that's actually like my larger that's my larger bent that i think jesus is working on and he worked on it in singleness and now he's working on it in marriage and so i am i don't know sometimes i just laugh about the fact that I am married because it's really surprising, but it's also been such a good gift um, after that kind of bizarre journey. And that whole journey and uh, my marriage are now an encouragement in the sense that um, things just don't always turn out the way that they look at the time. And that's actually a good thing to remember about any circumstance that I might find myself in that I'm um, surprised or frustrated by. So, yeah. But everyone's stories, everyone's story is different. So I, uh, I in no way say that to, and if, if I hadn't gotten married, like Jesus would still be at work. Um, and nope. What's your chance then? <laughs> <laughs> Only happens in marriage, Husband right? Or else, right? <laughs> fourth, fourth John chapter six. <laughs> right. So anyway. All right. That's no, I think, I mean, I think that it's almost a great summary uh, for the the whole context of the conversation is, you know, personal growth requires, like you said, uh, this introspection, but also requires this community. And within all of that, the reality that um, the the context may change, but the problems may still be there, um, but they get better. Yeah. Uh, especially if you're if you're actively seeking uh, help and community and. Jesus, I think, is it makes makes a big difference for people. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's the thing that um, just encouraging one another with with that reality too. Like we're in this together. Like I think that's another. We're not. We don't have to fight uphill by ourselves. So 
Yeah. Very cool. Well, okay. So final question for you. Sure. Shifting topics completely. What's one thing that you do that not many people know about? Hmm. Well, I already gave away my goat memes. Uh, and your secret. statistics about single people research. <laughs> right, I know. I'm still <laughs> waiting for that paper, by the way. I need to look <laughs> that up. It's really embarrassing that I admitted that out loud. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's see. It's helping you move forward. It is. It is. Part of my story. Um, I would say that... I mean, people who know me well sort of know this, but I really, I do love cheese a lot. This may be in the goat-related category. And so I always, like, I follow all of these specialty cheese places on Instagram. And I might have once applied to a job, a specialty cheese shop in D.C., considered leaving my actual job. Um, But I will often just, like, buy a really interesting cheese not for like a party or anything, just to see like, oh, what's this one taste like? <laughs> so, <laughs> like my secret cheese habit. Um, maybe eventually I'll have to talk about personal growth and cheese habits, but um, <laughs> but I will say it's I do I just love learning about cheese and I love um, just trying them with different things and so yeah that might be my my random thing that no one uh, no one knows. That's my side hobby. So, <laughs> yeah, I was not. I knew that Andrew at one point had experimented with making cheese. I know, but I I didn't know that it potentially was spurred on by your love for cheese. <laughs> I think <laughs> the, Martin, died in love. the the Martin family and cheese just have a long and deep relationship. <laughs> we do. With, and I think there's been many a therapy session that involved. The Martin just eating the cheese. So the cheese didn't really get therapy out of it. But. Right. <laughs> just, uh, That's, a block wow. of cheese and deep questions. <laughs> and pretzels. Right. Oh, who could well, drink pretzels? cheese? That's <laughs> <laughs> true. My wife did not grow up that way. So That's hilarious. There's, there's that. <laughs> You're like, this well, cheese is missing its pretzel friends. Oh, well, I'm yes. glad you had the opportunity to opportunity to straighten her out before she infected anyone else oh yeah <laughs> i'm sure that's how debbie working, views it working on that yeah yes mm-hmm. <laughs> like many other things right like toothpaste and toilet paper i we've we've worked yeah. all that out wait she doesn't use toothpaste or toilet paper <laughs> oh wow really yeah that's where you went with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh your poor wife we're throwing her under the bus and she's not here to defend herself that's all right. She yeah. she doesn't listen to this podcast anyway. Uh, <laughs> I hope she listens actually, to just this she, one. She's been listening to the last couple, and she's like, "I actually like this one." I'm like, "Oh, thanks." <laughs> <laughs> that's that's hilarious. Well, such is life. But yes. yeah, say thank you for for coming on the podcast. We we really appreciate it, and I I really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm I'm looking forward to being able to listen to it again. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me and for um, being committed to asking interesting questions of your own. It was really, um, it was really fun. Thanks, Amy. You know, Joe, that was a that was a really great conversation. I'm glad Amy was able to come on and uh, talk to us a little bit about personal growth, especially some of her own growth. Um, it's definitely been a growth point for me just in this conversation. Um, so I I think it's been you know, great to hear how much can change, you know, both when you're applying what you've learned and the Holy Spirit's at work in your life. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. It Well, and I was thinking about it too, um, because I've known you and your family since I was like in diapers. Um, like it's, I've actually been able to see some of the change happen, not only in Amy's life, but like in your life and some of your brothers and, and your your family. And so it's not only is it neat for me to be able to look back and see that that stuff has happened. Um, but I've also seen it happen in my own life. And I think when people are willing to get honest and get real with themselves and to look inside of their communities and their groups, and then, uh, you know, even if, you know, paid counseling is needed, it's amazing how far those things can go when we begin to deconstruct some of uh, the preconceptions that we've come into our lives with. So it was, it was, it was a great conversation. I, of course, I always like talking to your sister, but um, 
it was a great conversation. Yeah, I, I totally agree with, with your, you know, being willing to honestly self-assess is so critical. Um, so, mm-hmm. and I have to, I have to reflect your sentiment back to you as well. I've seen you grow and change um, dramatically over the 20, almost 30 years I've known you. So, I mean, I guess, does it really count? Do I, did I really know you in the nursery? I mean, that's... <laughs> <laughs> you did. I mean, like we discussed in the first com- the, the one of our earlier podcasts, I uh, I clearly was a bully, and, and now we don't. I don't bully you anymore. Exactly. So, just personal growth all over the place. <laughs> yep, I'm, I'm fatter. I'm smarter. I mean, just and even all over the even place. a little bit taller than when you were eight. <laughs> that's right. Not much. Some. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's great. So, hey, if uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, uh take a minute, just pause right now and go rate the podcast, leave us comments. It makes a big difference. We'll wait. We um, can we'll pause. We'll wait. <laughs> we yep. Yeah, go ahead right now, pause it. Right, hey, welcome back. <laughs> um <laughs> thanks for doing that. Uh you know, if if you enjoy it, share it. We've had a lot of people uh sharing episodes and we've seen um some tremendous growth in the podcast, which has been really cool even uh during the the few weeks while we were off. And if you have people that you know that you feel like they need to be here and they need to talk about stuff, we have some upcoming episodes where we want to talk about politics. Um get get that friend on here that likes loves to talk about it, is able to be even keeled and let us know. We would we'd love to have you on. And otherwise, we will catch you guys next time.